Welcome to Van Lathan's The Red Pill, where we give you the brutal reality of truth. Today's guest, I say this a lot, but it's true, and I get to do this on this podcast, is one of my personal heroes, Jason Wilson, leader of the Cave of Adullam, the transitional teaching program for boys um, up there in Detroit, Michigan. Jason is an amazing, an amazing person. Before we get to Jason, I want to talk to somebody out there. I want to talk to my white friends. This is a very important conversation to have with my white friends. Something happened last week. A friend of mine, she's a, she's a, a very good friend of mine, okay? Known this young lady for a couple of years. She had some problems on black Twitter. I'm not going to go back through what was said. I'm not going to go back through uh, how problematic what she said was. But she said something. Black Twitter didn't like it. And to be honest with you, what she said was all fucked up. I'm not even going to try to pretend like I was on the same page with what she said. Didn't agree, thought it was petty, thought it was actually indicative of sometimes the mayonnaise that gets inside of our white brothers and sisters' heads. Sometimes we got to talk to them and let them know why their thinking on certain issues is wrong. This is why we're friends. Being wrong is not a problem. That's not an issue. I've been wrong. Everybody's been wrong. I'm going to be wrong. People are wrong all the time. That's not an issue. What bothered me about this situation is when this friend, and she is still a friend, was wrong and was called out on being wrong, what she did was she mentioned me in a tweet and then tried to use that to get all of black Twitter off her. Said, hey, Van, you've known me for a long time. Do you think there's anything wrong with what I said? I am cautioning my white friends against doing that. I am not, in fact, the mayonnaise messiah. I am not your Hellman's helper, okay? Not going to be that guy. Now, if you said something and you feel like it's being misunderstood, I'm there to help translate culturally. Cultural translation it's something I really believe in. But if you are actually wrong, I'm not your get out of black Twitter jail free card. Never. Memo to my white friends. Love you guys. Okay. But if you think I'm going to come to the rescue when you offend black people, you're fucked. Bottom line. That's not saying that I can't disagree with black people. I do. A lot of times I disagree with the culture and the community on a lot of different things. But when I disagree with black people, I'm going to do it discreetly and constructively. When I disagree with white people, I'm going to do it aggressively and loud. Because they got to hear it. The whole Internet's got to hear it. Everyone's got to hear the disagreements that you would have with the class that has been oppressing a large number of people in America for a long time. This is not an indictment of all white people. This is not an indictment of white people in general. This is an indictment of the same method of thinking that has been holding people back. And they're not just holding back black people. They're holding back women all different shades of, uh, of women, they're holding back a lot of people. The American power structure has to understand what's wrong with it. 
Also, there's some things right with it. Not a lot, but they have to understand what's wrong with it. I'm begging you, if you would like to stay my friend, and I love to have friends of all shades, colors, and different backgrounds, don't pit me up against my people. I am emotionally connected to black people. I am spiritually connected to black people. I love my people. I'm not going to go against them for white wrongness. Ever. Ever. I'll help. I'll, yo, my homie didn't mean this. You know what I mean? He didn't, this is not what he was trying to get across or this is not what she was trying to get across. Maybe we, blah, 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 blah. But on some straight, yo, Van knows me. Van, I couldn't be wrong when I shouted the death to the N-words to the top of my lungs. I was just drunk. No, never. Don't do it. You're going to be disappointed. Now, me and this friend had a discussion. She doesn't believe she was wrong. Uh, she's not a bad person. She does, has no clue about the cultural implications of certain things. Doesn't know. Going to learn. Not going to be a part of her education on that. I've, I've said my piece, as have others. She's going to have to go get that knowledge for herself. And if not, she's going to make an enemy um, out of a, a lot of sisters and brothers uh, out here in the sphere. When you're a public person, um, that's tough to overcome. Uh, what I will say is this. I believe that there are, I've said this before on this podcast, small trees that we have to make with one another. You have to know that someone's coming to you and that they don't mean any harm. And as soon as you know that they don't mean any harm, you can have an open and honest conversation with them where no one has to pull any punches. I do believe that. The question is, how do we do that? The question is, how do we undo uh, hundreds of years of headbutting, um, generations of thoughts turning to words, words turning to actions, and actions turning to oppression? How do we establish comfortable and safe spaces for everyone to know that the person sitting across from them, even though they disagree with them, they don't disapprove of them. One way that we're going to have to do that is for people that come from the class that has been the ruling class in America. They're going to have to listen to what we're saying. First, listen Understand the experience of people that haven't had the advantages and privileges that you've had. If you're not willing to listen, if you're not willing to kind of take in what we're saying, then we got to fight. If you're not going to listen, we got to fight. Make your choice. Either you're going to listen or we're going to fight. And when I say we, I don't mean black people. I don't mean black males. I don't mean straight people. I don't mean LGBT people. I don't mean any specific people. I mean any group of people that is for freedom, equality, justice, and that is promoting the ever-changing landscape of American voices. Those people are going to fight you. All right. Now, Jason Wilson. Uh, when we were doing this podcast, when we were starting this, one of the people that I desperately wanted to have on here was Jason so that he could explain to me why he started the Cave of Adullam, why it's so important for him to be a leader in his community, and just the way that he developed the method that he, that he uses 
uh, to get through to young men. They use, up there at the Cave of Adullam, they use self-defense, emotional stability, and sort of uh, religious-based transitional teaching to affect men in our community. Makes them better men, makes them better fathers, makes them better members of their communities. And Jason's ability to tap in and touch people is absolutely remarkable. You feel it when you're sitting down talking to him. You feel his passion, his care about young men, his care about his community. And some of the things that he's been through in his own life, which we talk about on the podcast, are very instrumental into the reasons why he developed the method that he uses and why he does the work that he does. The brother grew up in Detroit, lost two of his brothers to violence, talks about sort of the broken situation he came from, from his father and his mother, and just how that made him into the man that he is today. I'm telling you guys right now, this gentleman is one of our most important leaders. If we can recreate what the Cave of Adullam is doing in Detroit for our young boys all over this country, if we can give this brother the resources that he needs to really put this out there, we can change lives. And I am honored that he would sit down on the red pill and talk to me about his book, Cry Like a Man, which is a memoir into uh, how he became who he is. And also about the future of the Cave of Adullam, his future, and how we're going to make this thing bigger and touch more lives. How touching the lives of young men can help our young women, can help our communities, how we can actually put some backbone and some, some real thought and some real care into what we're doing in these places that are so important, especially from young men during their formative years. This guy is amazing. And this conversation was amazing. You have have to talk to your elders, the men who have wisdom, the men who are working, and you have to get the knowledge that you need to get from them and you have to spread it around. We have to use these platforms to promote men like Jason Wilson. And I am honored to have sat down and talked with him. And I hope that you guys really enjoy the podcast. Pop some pills, let's get to it, man, I'm excited. White people in the room, clap for Jason Wilson. That's what we do before every podcast. We make the white people in the room clap. Because they got to clap for us. Brother, let me tell you something. Before this podcast started, there was a a list of people Mm -hmm. that I wanted to talk to, that I wanted to share energy with, that I wanted to personally learn from. Hmm. And you, of everyone in this world was on that list. Wow. I consider you um, to be a personal hero of mine. Uh, this is our first time meeting. Yes, yes. But uh, an inspiration um, and really someone who, as long as I have any type of voice, um, I'll do whatever I can to empower. So it means the world to me that you're here right now, finally meeting you uh, is fantastic. Feeling is mutual, brother. I uh, never forgot when you... Um, Basically, I shouted out the work we do, you know, Mm -hmm. after the situation happened with Kanye. Mm -hmm. And uh, we received an influx of people, um, not only following our uh, Instagram, but people have donated to helping us uh, purchase the building that we should close on any month now. Oh, wow. So you have it. We have the building. We have the keys and everything. We just have to go through the process as far as uh, the land division because the archdiocese, actually, we're buying it from the archdiocese. And they have property adjacent to it. So we have to show what is our property, the property lines, mm-hmm. the division. And then once that is settled, we're able to close. Okay. So, so I know all about you, what you do at the mm-hmm. Cave of Adullam. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's brilliant. But Jason Wilson, for people who don't know and are listening to The Red Pill, mm-hmm. how would you best describe your work? 
Um, I guess the best way to describe what we do, we allow, we give boys and young men a safe space to um, express the emotions that are inside of them before they become self-destructive. And so our mission is to teach, train, and transform uninitiated boys into comprehensive men. And more specifically, men of the most high, men who are physically conscious, mentally astute, but yet spiritually strong enough to navigate through the pressures of this world without succumbing to the negative emotions. And when you say uninitiated, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? It it means for um, boys, a ceremony to basically say you are now a man and it's time for you to start being responsible as one. Um, So often we uh, complain about a lot of boys or men who are in the basement playing video games but can't keep a job. Mm-hmm. They have they're uninitiated. They don't really know their purpose. They're disconnected. And so what we do, we get them young and teach them the way of, of righteousness, how to fight a good fight in this world and how to rule the soul or the emotions that stops us from being all that we're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And in that process, they learn etiquette skills, grooming, how to interview for a job. But the most important piece is emotional stability. Uh, the majority of our convictions are due to a lack of emotional stability because what starts, uh, my brothers were drug dealers, uh, mm. more specifically my the last one before he was murdered. The reason he started selling drugs because he was laughed at by a girl he had liked and she was in a car with BMW with a, a group of other guys. Mm. And he said, I would never be laughed at again. That was a decision based on the emotions of the moment. And he didn't have, my father wasn't there to help him flush that out, to say, son, continue to work hard. Eventually, you're going to meet the right woman. Mm. And so because he didn't have that as an option, he chose to sell drugs, became a millionaire. Right. But he's deceased now and uh, left a beautiful daughter behind. You know what? You, you, you told that there's probably several times in this that I'm going to be emotional because really the first one of the first videos I watched from you the video actually like made me cry because mm-hmm. I wasn't used to but it's something that you just said I remember I was a kid mm-hmm. and I was a chubby kid right and I was a chubby kid and I was telling my dad about this girl that I liked and I was telling him I was like because I this is you know this is the way it happened Matt they don't laugh at this story either. this is a heartwarming story yeah so uh, I remember I was going over to try to approach this girl. Mm-hmm. I might have been in like the fifth or sixth grade and I fell. And like I fell over and um, everybody laughed. Mm-hmm. Everybody, cause everybody laughs kind of when the fat kid falls and For stuff sure. like that, yeah. everybody laughed. And I remember I went home and I told my dad that my dad said, you know what? He was like, I'm sure that was embarrassing. But he goes, one day there's gonna be a woman that when you fall over and everybody else laughs, She's going to reach her hand down and she's going to pick you wow. up. Yeah. She's going to pick you up and she's going to make you feel like all of that stuff is not that big of a mm-hmm. deal. Mm-hmm. He was like, if that's not the girl, then it's okay. And, you know, kids, they laugh and stuff like that. But don't worry about it, son. Mm-hmm. Your time to do the things that you want to do is coming. And I felt better. Yes. And when you just said that, I never even think about how important times like that mm. are in my life and how small things like that make you make big decisions that can either lead you to success or to failure. Uh, major, I remember when I lost a fight, uh, my father act like I lost 10 fights. Mm. This was the only fight I ever lost in my life. Mm-hmm. And I went to him. Jason got them hands. Yeah, so I was, no, no, that's not, 
that's not it at all. But, but I, I went to him, you know, he said, so who won? That was his first question out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I think it was a tie, but I think he, he won. Mm-hmm. He went cold on me and said, son, I got to go. I got to get back to work and hung up. That right there taught me to have uh, uh, what I call a sledgehammer and mosquito mindset. So no matter if a guy could be this big, I'm going to beat him like he's this big. Mm. And so in that uh, mentality played out in my relationship with girls, just in life in and of itself, the disrespect of my mom, everything, because here it is the man that I came from. But yet you can't find it within yourself to encourage your son at his lowest point, mm. you know, and that changed me. Uh, the, the fighter that was in me actually went out that night. I remember struggling with depression. I would cut the lights off in my room and just stay there because I had no one to confide in. Mm. And then next thing you know, I wasn't, never was a thug, but like Tupac said, uh, I ain't a killer, but don't push me. Right. I had a lot of friends who were in, in the it's gang. a deep line yeah. from Tupac. Oh, yeah, a yeah. very deep line. Mm-hmm. And so I hung with them because I had affirmation. Mm-hmm. And that's what many people fail to realize. We're so quick to judge our boys. But the problem is everyone expects them to act like a man, but there's not a man there patiently teaching them how to be one. Mm. And so um, they get frustrated. And they say, well, I get love here. That's where I'm going. I want to ask you a question because we're going to talk about your book, your amazing book, Cry mm-hmm. Like a Man, mm-hmm. in stores now. Yes, at Barnes and Noble and Amazon, um, the 21st. The 21st. Martin Luther King. Um, that's dope. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in the book, you talk about sort of your life experience and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Your mm-hmm. brothers, mm-hmm. you had two brothers that were murdered. Yes. yes. Right. Um, how did that affect you growing up, your outlook on the world? You say one of your brothers became a pretty successful mm-hmm. uh, drug drug dealer. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a time where you aspired to be like him? Oh, definitely. Um, he wouldn't let me get too far involved. You mm-hmm. know, the most I ever did with him was count money. Right. Um, but yeah, when you have a brother who has $100,000 watches, I mean, 10 karat diamond rings, and that's $100,000 per ring, mm-hmm. and I'm 21, I'm looking up to that. Yeah, of course. You know, I could go buy a car with cash. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, it definitely played a major role. And then for me to lose my brother so young prior to him and hearing the stories of him and how real he was, I said, man, wow, this is God's replacement for me mm-hmm. with him because me and my brother, we were actually kept apart mm-hmm. because in my book I talk about how uh, it's rumored that he was born uh, with the woman he, my father committed adultery on my mom with. Right. So we had the same father but different mothers. Mm-hmm. So we didn't meet until I was 17. Mm. He always wanted to see me, but because of this, my father, he, he was trying to keep my mom. Mm-hmm. But so when he they didn't got want divorced, the, the, he didn't want the symbol of the infidelity. Just to remind it to my mom. But right. then they got divorced. And for some reason, they never we never uh, met until I went to the barbershop one day and my father wasn't there. And he says, uh, his uh, bar- barber that worked there says, Jason, I want you to let you, let you know you got a brother. I'm like, yeah, I know. I got another brother in Texas. He mm-hmm. says, no, you got a brother here. Mm. And I, unfortunately, I wasn't surprised because right. my father's uh, reputation was uh, mm-hmm. that of a Rolling Stone, a man who couldn't be committed to one woman. Sure. And so we met one night in a parking lot, um, and I was really excited, man, to finally have a big brother, someone I could talk to and depend on, and then he was rich, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but his death, um, it probably saved my life. 
um, because if I hadn't made it in music, because I always wanted to be a music producer, I actually produced uh, a song with Corrupt and his little brother Roscoe. Oh, and, word. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. Corrupt is a really good, you know, he was a good friend of mine when we were doing music. Mm-hmm. And so I aspired to be a great producer. Uh, I said, well, if that doesn't work, I can always sell drugs with my brother. Mm. So it was always something I could fall back on. Um, but that uh, winter, he was m- uh, murdered. We were going to move to Tennessee. He was going to open a club, and I was going to be the DJ. Mm-hmm. Um, but that winter, he didn't make it, and um, it changed my life. I had to get a job, um, provide for now my wife and my daughter, who was born at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, was she born? No, she wasn't born just yet, but I had uh, Nicole. She was my girlfriend at the time. Mm. And I had to make some serious decisions about life. And I'm, I'm uh, although it, it hurt me mm-hmm. that he's gone, um, only good thing I can see from it is that I didn't follow the same path. What, so after he, uh, after he passed, that was the wake-up call? There was no thought about you going, yo... Let me kind of get back here and pick up where he left off or anything like no, that. No, because he was the real deal. So right. um, <laughs> I remember I had beef one day and I you know, I hit him up on his beeper. That's when we had beepers right. back in the day. Right up. And so, I mean, just real talk, I, I just wanted to just maybe just drive by, do a drive by. Mm-hmm. He says, no, nah, they they going to try to hurt you. Let's go in there and get him out the house. And, you mm. know, that's when I realized who he really was. Right. He was a serious brother. Um, and that's why people say, well, man, aren't you scared when you work with boys who are in gangs or whatever? I said, no. Nah. I say, because the most dangerous brothers don't look tough. Mm. They smile and they shake your hand and they're real polite. Mm. You wouldn't know the type of profession he was in. Right. And so I never wanted, when I saw the real life van, I didn't want to get involved. I always, even growing up, I had some, uh, I had some wisdom. Mm. And, Whatever appeared foolish, I, I tried to stay away from if I could. Mm. Um, and that lifestyle, when I saw it live for real, I said, I'm not built for, for that. At what point in your life did you decide, okay, I've learned these lessons from myself. I've avoided these pitfalls for myself. But now let me turn around and instill some of this wisdom into people to try to break mm. a cycle that's really hurting our, our communities. You know, I always mentored uh, in my community. and I, And when I think back, some of the drug dealers, the, the old OGs, they would have their sons come by my house, my mother's house, actually, mm-hmm. at the time. And I had no idea that God was prepping me for what I'm doing now back then. And so they said, man, please watch my son. I don't want him to end up like such and such and such and such. And so I was always had it in my heart, man, to help younger brothers and boys. But I never had no one to tell me that was the good thing to do. Right. So I always did it for a moment and then tried to do something else. Mm-hmm. And so um, it actually all clicked in when uh, I started really getting serious in martial arts. And I saw a, t- uh, a connection there between uh, what a boy needs for his affirmation, finding himself, the confidence, but also ruling the emotions. Because to be a good martial artist or a good fighter you can't allow your emotions to use you. Like if we were boxing, I see you like boxing, mm-hmm. it, and I, I kept doing this. Mm-hmm. And the commentator would be like, what's wrong with Wilson? What is he doing? Right. But if I do this and you go for it and I knock you out with an overhand left, mm-hmm. they say, wow, that was a great fake. Right. So that type of principle I use to teach in life. So a young kid may want the Jordans, the newest, newest Jordans, 
but he says, I'm going to go ahead and steal or sell drugs to get him. That's a fake punch. Mm. I said, if you go that route, it appears that you can get it or you can uh, uh, penetrate, but you'll get knocked out. Right. So when I was able to start tying these things together in the late 90s and then the early 2000s, I said, wow, there's a connection here between training a boy physically and getting him ready spiritually. Mm. And uh, it, 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 I saw boys transform just from giving them just basic confidence to, to live from who they are instead of what the community says you have to be. Yeah. And so, because a lot of good boys, man, majority of drug dealers I knew came from two-parent homes. Right. They didn't have to sell drugs. Yeah. They chose to sell drugs. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not the case for a lot of our youth, but it was a, it was a decision they made. Mm-hmm. What would have happened if they could have ran into brothers like you and I back then and could have told them, look, man, you, you aspire to be an engineer. That's what's up. Let me help you get there. Mm-hmm. They would have changed. You know what? That's one of the main difference that I, differences that I saw. Um, growing up, I was in a, a program where a lot of my classmates were white. And so a lot of the friends that I had um, while I was in the gifted program, there was this diversity of occupations that their parents had. Mm. Um, like I remember a, a, a friend of mine, Robert, his dad was an orthopedic surgeon. I learned what an orthopedic surgeon did uh, because his father was one. And then mm. the other guy's dad was an accountant. Mm. Then there was a rabbi. And mm. then it was all of these different things. So in those kids' immediate communities, their examples of success weren't just diverse. Uh, they were tangible. Yes. Yeah. They would be around these people. Yes. They would see that going to a medical school and working on people's knees and ankles, uh, the college players over from LSU can get you a Mercedes Benz mm-hmm. or a big house if that's the kind of Very thing that you, point. That, that, yeah. that you would talk about. Where I grew up, the only examples that we had of guys who who had done that were ball players or dudes that was in the game. For sure. So those were the things that you tried to do. Hip-hop came later, yes. but the things that you saw that guys were successful at mm-hmm. were the things that you emulated. That's the truth. Yeah. And so, so it wasn't even, sometimes it's not even, people think it's always this dramatic choice that you make. It's mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just about what it is that you see, mm-hmm. what's available to you, mm-hmm. and how you gravitate to I mean, it. That's, I mean, you know, I, I have a saying, be what you didn't see. Mm. And so a lot of times our kids, you know, psychology tells us that our kids learn from more from what we do than what we say. Right. And so a friend of mine, Ishan, who wrote the uh, forward to my book, he talked about growing up in his community and the fathers who had professions, they never came out to play with or talk to the fatherless mm. boys. Right. So they would go to work, work hard, and come home to their immediate family, go to sleep, and do the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right, you know, but even at the end of the day, it's still a choice. Yeah. You know, at the end, even though if it, you still Oh, have, I definitely, yeah, 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 I definitely agree with you that. Still have, but you're right, you know, it's important for, that's why, you know, no matter your political views about President Obama, I celebrated. And when he won, I cried because now a little black boy can actually believe he can be president. That moment happened to me. Yeah. I was doing a mentorship and I used to do it. Uh, it, it was just like 2000, 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk to these kids. And the first thing I would ask any group of kids I'm talking to you mm-hmm. is I would, I would say to them, I want to give you a blueprint to be what you want to be. Yes. yes. 
I'm not gonna tell you what you have to be. Yeah. I wanna give you a blueprint. I wanna give you the skills to be what you wanna be. Mm. So what is it that you wanna be? I wanna play for the Lakers. I wanna do this, I wanna do that, I wanna do that. That's what they would say, right? And then we would talk about how you become whatever it is that you wanna do, right? right? It was, right. We, we had, we did uh, outreach and we also did a basketball team. And I remember shortly after Obama was inaugurated, uh, this kid named Jamil comes up to me and he goes, how do I become the president? Hmm. Mm -hmm. exactly. And I was like, well, he goes, if I wanted to be the president, like how would I do that? Hmm. And I was like, it's hard. I was like, you know, Barack Obama was the editor of the Harvard Law <laughs> exactly. Review. Yes. And then he went to, uh, to, to law school and he's a constitutional law professor. If you want to be the president, yeah. you need to start yeah. now. He was active in the community as right. well. Right. Yeah. yeah. He, he, he built himself mm -hmm. up mm -hmm. like on, in the community and mm -hmm. uh, in the scholarly world. Yeah, he and, he, and, and I remember this kid goes, I think that's what I want to do. And I just, it, I was, and then he went on starting shooting. And I was just thinking, damn. <laughs> hmm. I was thinking, I, I could have not created the value yes. in that for him had I tried a million times. I mean, with me, like my son asked me, um, I never forget this question, I never will. He says, dad, how did you become a great dad when your father wasn't? Mm. And I said, son, I simply gave you what I longed for. I, I be what I didn't see for the next generation. I know what they need because I too desired it. And so instead of making excuses about the pain, me not having a father or I not had a lot of options, mm -hmm. I create them. Mm -hmm. And so as black men, especially leaders in our community, especially, you know, what, what, what bothers me is when I see activists who say they're about building our communities but don't want to get married. Mm. You can't build the community without the family. Mm. Everyone talks about generational wealth, but no one wants to get married and have kids. Mm. Then you don't want to train up your kids so we can run a family business. Mm. We sell all our businesses. Mm. And so at the end of the day, it, it all falls upon the leaders. You know, I was talking with um, a man at the airport. He says, man, I like your beard. I said, yeah. I said, you know, I've learned to appreciate my age. Mm -hmm. Like young kids don't need old men to act young. Young men need old men to act wise. Word. And so I embrace who I am as, a, as a, a, a sage in my community, and I embrace the older wise men in my community as well. And so until we, you know, really model it for our kids to see, man, they, they can't, but they won't believe it, man. Let's talk a little bit about the pain. Mm -hmm. You talk about losing two brothers. Um, there's also, you talk about the fact that your grandfather was lynched mm -hmm. uh, down in the South. This boulder that's put on our back of this pain mm -hmm. that we didn't earn, this pain that was just given to us, mm -hmm. the pain of watching people around us, things that happen in your life, uh, losing uncles, mm -hmm. losing, your, watching your mom lose brothers, yeah. watching your dad lose brothers, mm -hmm. you losing brothers, like your homeboys getting My caught best up. My friend dropping dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, so. you know what I mean? First week I'm in L.A., mm -hmm. uh, a guy close to me, like a brother to me. First week I'm in LA, I'm trying to change my life. A guy close to me um, gets in an altercation with a police officer um, and he gets shot dead. I literally have, wasn't in LA three days mm. when I get this news. And just then you hear other stories. Your boy is found in a car, a car still running. He's shot in his back and you mm. go into all of these funerals mm -hmm. and this pain builds up. 
Uh, how do you sort of teach young men to deal with that and uh, 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 address it without being angry about it, mm-hmm. which you know I've gone through and I know other brothers have gone through, and also without falling into the traps of self-medicating yeah. and about taking that pain back out on society and really back out on your community? Well, the first thing is imperative that we give them a safe space to release it. You know, uh, anger really isn't a bad thing. You know, uh, the scriptures say, be angry, but do not sin. Anger has sparked some of the strongest movements in our history. It doesn't mean if you're angry that it's, it's automatically wicked. It depends on what you do with that anger. And so I allow if a kid is angry, I allow him to express that. And we talk through those emotions before they become deep rooted issues. And so as far as my grandfather's lynching, although I wasn't living when that happened, I saw the negative effects from it through my mother and uncles. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, three of them have dementia because of it. Mm. My mother could never release the pain of those memories. And unfortunately, as many of us as black people, we believe trauma is just a part of our experience. Right. As a matter of fact, sometimes if you haven't had enough trauma, they think that you're not black enough. You're soft. Yeah. 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 I mean, just think about that. We brag about it. Uh, Again, the the brother who wrote the foreword in my book, Eshan Burgundy, he said when he got shot, he didn't even cry. Mm. Because it's just a part of the black experience. But I wrote my book, it's not a part of the black experience. We have to learn how to release this trauma. That's why we could bump into each other and we're ready to shoot or fight each other. Yeah. Because we're holding on to so much trauma that our threshold is right here all the time. So for me now, where I'm at, my kid, my threshold low. So if something happened, I'm able to assess the situation without responding emotionally. Mm-hmm. And so when you give boys a safe space that they will not be condemned, but communicated with compassionately, mm-hmm. they start learning how to share these feelings before they start reacting to them. Mm-hmm. And so when you give, again, the kids just allowing us to have that safe space. That's what the whole thing of the, the premise of the cave of Adullam was built around. You know, I don't, it doesn't matter what your faith, if you don't, if you're not a believer, Christian or what or not, you know about David and Goliath. Sure. David was running from King Saul and he hid in a cave. This was at the cave of Adullam. 400 men who were in debt, distressed and discontented came to him and he, and they made him their, their leader. These same men, Van, came out and were called mighty men of valor. Something happened in that cave, and it's really not documented in scripture, but we can, we can kind of, when you put the historical context together, if you put a hurting man with the man who they want to be the leader, who's mm-hmm. a great fighter already, and these men come out as great fighters, clearly they were able to work through being in debt, being distressed and being discontented with life, that you can come out with a different mentality. Mm. That's what we need. We need something more than a barbershop, you know, and we can't look at mental health as a weakness. We have to learn how to take care of ourselves. And a lot of fathers are coming to me crying. They said, man, I just wish I was a better father. And the first thing I do, I say, look, stop beating yourself up so much. You're two generations away from slavery. Mm. You don't even know how to be a father yet. Right. You know, um, do I give them a pass for not being there for their son or daughter? No, I, I encourage them. I don't like the word challenge per se, so I use the word encourage. It, it is a challenge, but I know you can do better. Mm. But as long as we, 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 we label ourselves or, or, or condemn ourselves, man, change is almost impossible. Mm. And so, again, man, I mean, it, we, we have a lot of trauma that needs to be released. We see it all day on social media. And it becomes a norm, but it's not normal. It damages us from the inside out. 
All right, let's play some bills real quick. We'll come back to Jason in one second. This week's episode is brought to you by Blinkist. Today's age, it can be hard to find the time to sit down and learn more, especially when the likes of social media can be so addictive and time-consuming. So you might think you don't have the time to read a book or to develop yourself. Well, think again. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways and need-to-know information. So you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes, a whole book, all that info in just 15 minutes, that's amazing. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, to history books. I like Blinkist because so many things happening for me right now, so many things going on in life right now, but I still need the bullets in my brain to be able to fight this information war and to be able to fit those in in just 15 minutes. It's really, really invaluable. I can be a more informed guy. Uh, I can keep my mental health up where it needs to be. Some of these books are very instrumental in that. And, you know, it just makes you smarter. You want to be smarter. For me, I've really been getting into Becoming by Michelle Obama. You guys think that this book is just a memoir. I've used Blinkist with this book. It is more than a memoir. It is a life manual on how Michelle Obama became who she is, one of the most important and impressive sisters of all time. I love the book, and Blinkist uh, has really, really, really helped me get into it without devoting the entire time to it. But I'm going to read the whole thing because I love Michelle Obama as well. Also, I've been using it for a book called Getting Things Done by David Allen, it is an amazing piece of work that helps you sort of focus your energy into executing the goals that you want to get accomplished. That's very important for me right now. A lot of things on the table. Got to execute, though. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer for just our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash pill to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash P-I-L-L to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash P-I-L-L. Let's get back to some of this inspiring conversation with Jason. Name of the book is Cry Like a Man. And as many great lessons as I have from my father, my father's a hard, hard man, man. Mm-hmm. Maringwin, Louisiana, population 3,000. Growing up, I had a lot of worries. I used to get, I used to read encyclopedias. Like my uncle Marvin sent some world book encyclopedias from, from California and I would pop open the encyclopedia and I would read it. And I would read all of these things. I would read about the ozone layer. I would read about, I remember in the first or second grade, everybody had to draw a picture for an art class. Mm-hmm. And my picture was of a Soviet soldier and an American soldier hugging because I was mm. so afraid of a nuclear war mm. that I just wanted everybody to be cool. Mm. And I started taking on all of these things in addition to all of this other stuff, and I became a little emotional as a kid, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yes. you know, you, you, you get me mad, I will fight, but I will cry first. Yes, yes. Uh, and I remember I got to a point to where I would almost never cry because my dad hated it. Like he, he, my father's a great, lovely man, Mm. but that I've never seen him cry. Mm. And, um, he just, he couldn't stand it. He, he, Mm. he hated it. He needed to get that out of me. He said he needed to build backbone in me. So, you know, after a while you have enough fights, you kind of, you get 
acclimated to your surroundings mm -hmm. and you get taught that showing emotion is a sign of weakness. For sure. The first video I ever saw of you was you letting or not letting, like embracing a young man as he cried and got it out. Mm -hmm. And I was done. Mm -hmm. I never had an opportunity in my life to express feelings of loss or sadness um, with my father. Mm -hmm. uh, just, and you know, as much as I love and look up to my dad, it just wasn't something that he was about. Like, how is that cycle broken? How, mm -hmm. how do we understand that there's, uh, there's strength sort of in those things? Wow, that's, I mean, you said a lot there, brother. Because um, my father, he was the same way, very tough. Didn't, he didn't tell me he loved me until I was 37, man. Yeah. And so, um, wow, you said a lot there. I, first thing we got to realize is the benefit of crying, okay? Uh, Dr. William Frey says that crying from emotional pain not only is 98% water, but releases stress hormones. That's why typically we feel better after we cry after something traumatic happens. Yeah. And then we remember it, then we cry again. It's a human response. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, when you study history, uh, Sir Lancelot and even in uh, uh, the samurai era, they would cry during war and after war. You think of the Irish being tough fighters. Mm -hmm. There's an Irish proverb that says, never trust a warrior who cannot cry. Mm. And so the way we start is first is stop allowing uh, the word or the adjective masculinity to define us. When you look up the word, it literally only means, it says, attributes ascribed, traditionally ascribed to men, such as strength and boldness. But the problem is we're not... We can't be uh, uh, defined by just those attributes of being masculine because we're human. What about being compassionate? What about being loving? What about being forgiving? If you can't exercise your, your whole humanity, there's no way you can really be a comprehensive man or love a wife or be a great father or, or, or be a great grandfather. Because you can't, you, you, you've, you, you won't allow yourself to express really what your heart is feeling. And that's the conflict for most men. Inside, we want to be romantic. Like, for years, I couldn't hold my own wife's hand because of the way I grew up in Detroit. I've things I saw guys get beat down walking downtown because they're holding their hand, holding their hand with their girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Here it is, I'm a grown man married, and I'm still remembering that trauma, and it stopped me from holding my wife's hands. Yeah. But when you study psychology, it's proven now that when you're able to hold a woman's hand or hug someone, it decreases pain. Mm -hmm. So then you wonder why men commit suicide more than women because we do not allow ourselves to express our humanity because we trapped by masculinity. Hmm. You know masculinity as a trap. There's no such thing as false masculinity or toxic masculinity. It's called masculinity. Mm -hmm. If you all you had was a pit bull and all he did was fight all day, if he only operated in that one attribute, what type of dog would you have? Right. Yeah. It's a killer. You need to put it to sleep. 
But now we see that pit bulls really aren't just fighters. They're loving dogs. Protective even. Very protective, but I'm saying, but that's one side of them. That's just one attribute of how God created them. But they're also loving. uh, They love being uh, affectionate with babies. Mm -hmm. We never would have saw that until this recent movement of uh, adopting strays. Because in my era, the pit bull was a straight fighting dog. That's what you use it for in Baton Rouge. Yeah. yeah. But but my point is proven by the fact that he, the dog is not just a fighting dog. Mm-hmm. Pitbull is a great defender, but it's a great lover. It's a great uh, companion. Mm-hmm. You know, and so as a man, like with my wife, we got in an argument before I, I came out here to L.A. and I could have easily hit my emotions and said, you know, uh, act tough, don't speak to her and just flew out here. Mm-hmm. But I was hurt and I needed to express that hurt. So when she came to give me a hug before we left, uh, I hugged her and I just started crying and I told her, hey, you know, I'm sorry for the way I talked to you. And I said, the way you talk to me, we t- the way we talk to each other is very hurtful. She started crying. She held me and said, it's going to be all right. You know, we just had a disagreement. Mm. But because I'm comfortable with who I am, I don't live from what I do, but who I am. I have the freedom now to cry and love without limits. See, it's people, we, we think that it's courage that makes us courageous. No, it's love that makes a father run through bullets to get his children. Mm. You can take a guy that's never been in a fight. He'll fight as many guys as he has to to protect his family. Right. That's, and see, when, when men are allowed to really be comprehensive, when we're not condemned for being human, this entire world would change, mm. you know? So um, it has to start with first, mas- masculine attributes are needed. Yeah. Like it's a time I have to be a warrior. Right. But it's more times I need to be loving and forgiving. I mean, Van, if I just got in a situation just recently where it was serious, you know? Life could have been potentially life-threatening for me and my son. I had to turn into a warrior. I had to turn that masculine attributes on. Mm. My emotional stability training allowed me, when the car was coming around with these guys, potentially was going to try and shoot this one kid that was next to me. I had to calm my nerves so that I could turn that key to get my son inside. And that's the benefit of being able to release emotions every day. If I would have never released my emotions, I would have just pulled out my gun because I can legally carry it and just started shooting mm-hmm. because that's an impulse. Mm. When you're not used to processing how you feel in the heat of the moment, you're going to react. Next thing you know, you're probably in jail or you committed an assault. For me, because I keep my threshold low, because I can cry, because I can express how I feel, I can, okay, no, this situation here, this happened, this happened, this happened. I'm going to choose B. And now we made it home safely. Wow. Wow. Um, all of this knowledge that you have, what are some of the exercises uh, you know, at the cave of Adullam, mm-hmm. I want to make sure that everyone knows it's cave at cave three one three. Um, in, in uh, on Instagram, what are some of the things that you do besides encouraging young men to cry? Like, how do you when you when you take a young man and you see that he might be broken or uninitiated, as you say, mm-hmm. just take us through how you go through building trust with him and building him up. Well, first thing you know, I always tell every mentor that I mentor that. If you say I love you to the young man you're training or working with and he doesn't say I love you back, you have a lot more work to do. 
uh, Jawanza Kanjufu says, you can't teach a child that you don't love. So the first thing I let every recruit know when they come through that door, whether they say you have ADHD symptoms, whether you have anger issues, whether you, you're one step away from juvie, you're going to know that you love when you come through that door. Mm. Number two, I allow you to make mistakes. I, I erase this whole fear of failure because growing up without a father or the classic where if, if your father isn't in the home, only time he comes around is to discipline you. What does that teach you about mistakes? That it's failure, it's doom, you're in trouble if you make it. So now, instead of doing what's hard, we do what's easy and we go the wrong path. Mm. It's easy to get involved with gangs. It's easy to go try to find some drugs to sell. It's hard to study to get a 4.0. It's hard to be uh, respectful and honorable to your parents. Why? Because you got to fight your own desires. Mm -hmm. So once I tell them that mistakes are, are our best teacher and the only worst mistake is the one you didn't learn from, they're free then. And so also another thing I teach them when they come in, they lay down. Many of the ADHD symptoms we're seeing is due to trauma. Mm. Studies have proven that. And so if you have kids who go to sleep to gunshots, how do you think they're going to sit still in a classroom? Mm. I tell you the truth, man. Maybe I want to say almost all of the recruits that come through the cave that have been diagnosed ADHD. Man, we eradicate those symptoms, brother. Because mm. see. It's like an earthquake, so we call them tremors, right? That when you know the earthquake is something's about to happen. Sure. When the kid is shaking and can't sit still, it's tremors. Something beneath the surface is trying to erupt. When I allow a kid to express himself and say, why are you shaking? Only thing that needs to move is your mouth. Keep your hands still. Talk to me, son. Stay calm. Next thing you know, they're not moving anymore. Hmm. They're focused. Their grade point average improved one letter grade without tutoring. Hmm. Why? All we do is allow them the opportunity to express what's bothering them so that they can be all that they want to be inside. Mm. Um, another training we do, we do blindfold training a lot as well because when God gives you a vision, something great, and you stay in a community where there's 15 abandoned houses on your block, it's easy to lose hope. So a scripture say we walk by faith and not by sight. I say we fight by faith and not by sight as well. So I take the eyes away so you stop depending on what you have, you see to determine your destiny. Mm -hmm. I want you to go from the feeling what God placed in you so you can respond on that and not the negativity you see. Mm. And because of that, not only you become a greater fighter, you know, when someone grabs you, I don't have to look at your hand to put you in an arm bar. I know because I train with my eyes closed. Mm -hmm. When God gives me a vision, I don't have to see it before it comes to pass because I believe it, mm -hmm. and then it comes to pass. Mm -hmm. So when you give a young man that type of knowledge, and then it's, it's, like I say, discipline without love is ineffectual. It doesn't work. That's why boot camps have failed. You have some that are still around, but the majority... They didn't last. And that's when I figured out, I'm like, oh, it's not discipline that our boys are lacking. It's love. Hmm. So when I gave them love rooted in discipline, right. man, I, I recruits, I mean, it, it keeps me going because it gives me hope. I, I don't fight for what's in front of me. I fight for what's coming behind me. And so even for fathers, because they'll be there, and we have a lot of men that will come to the training, and they'll cry. I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see fathers or grandfathers and sons in one area. And they say, what else can I do? I'm struggling with lust. And I, a simple example I use is a bag of Lay's. Like, I love Lay's potato chips. And one day, I was on a diet. I was just trying to uh, get cut, refined. Mm -hmm. I walked past my cabinet. I said, you know, 
uh, two chips won't hurt me. Mm. And God told me, hmm, he says, if you can't deny those legs, how are you going to deny those legs? <laughs> and so I'm looking at a bag of chips <laughs> right. versus uh, uh, a beautiful woman. Mm -hmm. If me and my wife get in an argument and temptation comes, now I have to fight even harder because the little things I didn't master. Mm -hmm. And we have them all throughout life. Yeah. Road rage. Why? You know where that's going to lead. Right. You know it. Right. And, uh, Einstein says, is, Einstein said, insanity is doing the same Maybe thing over and over, expecting right. a different result. Right. That's one thing I look at marriage. I don't want to lose. And so even when we got in an argument yesterday, I went to my wife, held her hands and prayed, even though I was angry. Mm -hmm. But I said, I'm not going to lose my family. Mm -hmm. It's too precious. Right. And so you can't do that, Van, if you were slave to your emotions. Right. It's building families is very, very important. Um, and it's difficult to build families if you don't have the proper respect, love, admiration uh, for women. And, you know, there's a lot of things going on in society right now that are proving something that we all, all we all basically knew is that a lot of times we don't protect love, um, respect, nurture, and uplift our women the way that we're supposed to. It's maybe our greatest failing. Yes. Um, how, do you, how do you instill that? How do you attack that? Because some of the neighborhoods that I grew up in, uh, you know, fidelity is a, is a, is a, is a tough thing mm. for guys to learn because the first thing that you learned is the more popping that you are, mm -hmm directly equates to the number of women that you've slept with or that would want to sleep with you. Yes. And that's reinforced more almost than any other lesson. Yes. So how do you take a young man um, and instill in him the, 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 the proper way to treat love um, and really instill that same confidence that you're talking about into his woman and into the women in our communities? Well, I use myself for an example. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't learn how to love my wife until I loved myself. Mm. I hated myself. Um, thought I was a failure. And I, uh, she was successful. She had a college degree from University of Michigan. Oh, she wow. needed a job. She can get a job. And I would ask God, like, why can't I get my job? And then the scripture said, husbands are supposed to love their wives as their own bodies. And I always say, we're doing that. Because we hate ourselves. We're treating our women the way we feel about ourselves inside. And every brother, we all know, that's when I talk to men in eyes water. You look in the mirror, you don't even love yourself. You feel you're a failure, you're nothing. And so hurt people hurt people, and they keep hurting people. And so the problem, it doesn't lie in our women. You blame a woman like some of the feckless things I hear that she shouldn't have wore that or that's her attitude. No, brother, you got to control yourself. Practice sexual self-control, but you can't because you don't love yourself. Mm. So when I lost my virginity, you're right. It was like uh, virginity uh, when I came up was like uh, you were cursed almost. It was my like dad you were told, an outcast. My yeah. dad and my uncles was like, yo, it, I love my, 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 the men in my family, they're country and they're old fashioned. Yeah. I'm not trying to throw them under the bus. Yeah, for sure. But they say, listen, you're a Lathan man. You can't yeah. be 16 and no virgin. Wow. And I, that, that's what that's that, yeah, yeah, no, that's the truth. You know what I mean? But like, you're a Lathan. You can't be 16 and but, no virgin. This is what happens, though. 
that's what causes that's that's what begins our by the way, I was 16 in the Virgin. Yeah, like, it was late. Morning. I was, I think I was 15. Right, <laughs> and that's crazy. We say that's late. Yeah, but I vowed because I got horse lapped out my cousin's house because he told everyone in the house that I was a virgin. Mm. Even my mother laughed at me, mm. and I vowed that I would no longer be a virgin come the next school year. Right. When I lost my virginity to a woman I didn't even care about, I saw my mindset change towards all women. I didn't even respect my mother anymore. Mm. See, we got to understand when you when you light. See, by faith, I'm a follower of the Most High. And people say a Christian. I'm devout. I don't. I don't. I don't. Uh, I'm not religious. I'm about having my relationship strong with the Lord that I follow. It is written that we become one flesh with the prostitute when we lie with her. And this is very interesting. What men fail to realize is that. When you have sex with multiple women, you think about the other woman while you're having sex with another one. Then sometimes you bring the other girl in the bedroom and she's not even there because you've left a little of yourself with each of these women. And in the process of really disrespecting them, you're disrespecting your own body. See, the real issue is, are we training our boys up enough to value their temple just as precious as a woman should value her body? Like we we a dog a woman for having sex more than one time or two times, but for us it's a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. The problem is, brother, we have no self love, and I couldn't love my wife until I found a way to love myself, and that didn't come until I surrendered my life to Yeshua or who they call Jesus. And without being religious, because I study Egyptology and other religions, I wouldn't have came to that faith. Somebody couldn't just preach to me in the Bible. I almost died twice as I wrote about in that book. Mm-hmm. But one thing, they could see and they could have a special right now and says, you know, uh, we just found breaking news. Uh, Jesus is fake. God is fake. It's not real. It wouldn't fade me one bit because I know inside by the things that has happened in my life, the way uh, he's transformed me. So what I had to find first was why I'm here. Why do I exist? Solomon talks about as well, don't waste your streams of water in the streets having sex with just anyone. He was talking about sperm. Mm -hmm. You actually lose your power the more you disperse your energy. And so when you teach a boy that being a virgin is actually a sign of strength more so than weakness, when the, see, we're we're so busy cutting off branches instead of uprooting the tree. The problem Mm -hmm. is the culture. And real talk is many of us who are leaders don't really want to change. See, we complain about it. We want to march and do other things. But if we could change ourselves, if like right now, what if you found out I had three women? Your whole outlook of me would change, right? Mm. See, it's bigger than me if I see an attractive woman. It's bigger than the love I have for my wife. I fear the Lord, of course, mm. but it's so much for us to lose. So much, too many kids are looking at me like, it's possible to be faithful to one woman. It's possible to love a woman if you love yourself. But until we get past the self-hatred that we have, like you can bump into a brother right now, and it's, it's on, it could be on and popping at any second. That's self-hatred. You can't love no one and you hate yourself. Mm. And so that's what's happened until brothers, black men, since we're talking about us, 
until we seek healing and release the trauma, the father wounds, the mother wounds, the, the murders that we've seen, until we're able to release that, and it's not going to be easy. You and I, you know, we could run and rescue some kids in the building. If they trap with drug dealers, it don't matter because it's worth risking our lives for. Mm-hmm. But say we got to go introspective and deal with everything emotionally inside of us. We shy away from that. We'd rather go get something to drink or go to the club. Right. Right. Nah, it's the, I often think about, um, I often think about sort of the environments that we grow up in and the fact that, uh, you know, we end up raising each other Mm. and we end up raising each other and it's, it's really, we end up raising each other and the environment ends up raising us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the human survival instinct is very strong. Mm-hmm. And if you don't watch yourself, you'll get addicted to it. Yes. You'll get addicted to, I just need to stay alive. Yes. And you'll forget about thriving and mm-hmm. making the necessary changes within yourself to have a fruitful life mm-hmm. and also to make sure that other people have fruitful mm-hmm. lives. And fatherlessness is one of the things uh, one of the symptoms we talked about it a little bit earlier uh, that is really dogging us. Mm-hmm. Fatherlessness, in it, it, it's it's evident in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Like as like I've dealt with a lot of things. I've dealt with an anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. I've dealt with you know not being able to control myself from a weight perspective, mm-hmm. ballooned up, depression, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But there still was a part of me that knew. That there was a man greater than me mm. that if I needed something would go to battle for me. Mm-hmm. Um, what we, in order to get fathers back in the homes, it's going to take some time. Until that happens, until, because there's generations of fatherless men being mm-hmm. born as we speak. Mm-hmm. The rest of us, what do we do? Like, the cave of Adullam is a great thing. How does somebody like me who doesn't have any kids, mm-hmm. how does other guys, how do we take responsibilities for our community um, and make sure that these boys have outlets and make sure that we're addressing some of the problems that not having male role models? What do I need to do? All right. Okay. Before I get to, you know, the template, start a program, follow what's in your heart, mm-hmm. start with just two boys. I can run that all day. There's tons of mentoring programs. Mm-hmm. Boys be what they see. So I have to go back to Van, us being what we say, what we're telling them to be. So if we're going to change the community, for just say fatherlessness, I was on a panel discussion and we're talking about saving our sons, but none of us talked about marriage. And I had to reset the panel. You're putting the cart before the horse. Until the black man becomes committed to his family, fatherlessness will always exist. That's the problem. We can open up YMCA's all over the country. As long as the black man cannot practice uh, commitment or sexual self-control to one woman, commit to building his family, his legacy, commit to living from who he is in his home more so than he is in his community, we're always going to be trying to fix that problem. Hmm. So really the solution to that Again, I have to go back to the trauma and the emotional wounds that we live from as black men. 
We have to get healed and get help, professional help. It may take professional help more so than your pastor or your barber and say something is wrong with me. And that's why I tell brothers, just because something is wrong with you doesn't mean something is wrong with you. Mm-hmm. It's just something going on that you got to work through. The worst thing I could do for boys in our community is to tell them something that I don't live. Tell them to uh, love your body, brother, keep your virginity. Uh, stay focused on woman. We got to build a community, but they see me at the club hollering at three women. Mm. It's hypocritical. And this generation, especially millennials, can't stand hypocrites. Yeah, they don't deal with yeah, it and at so, all. Again, man, I'm a principle-based person, so... Um, I could say, you know, all the good things, you know, hey, you know, if you feel you've got a barbershop, mentor a couple kids, teach them how to cut hair and in the process, teach them etiquette and grooming. I could do all that all day. But because I've been doing this work for almost 15 years now, it's not going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is that we're crushed on the inside. And until we're able to release that, why do you think? I could talk to gang members and and they literally become almost docile like my sons because they're crushed because their fathers wasn't there. They don't want to be in that lifestyle. They just want to have a man that they can touch that's real. When these boys see a man that can stick with one woman and raise his children and walk in integrity, that's more influential than any athlete. It's more influential than any drug dealer. But we have to be real with ourselves as men and look in the mirror and stay in the mirror and stop pointing the finger at people. We're hurting as black men. And I, when I, I'm not just, I got men who direct message me in tears. Mm. Say, man, I need help. We don't want to get married because we feel we're inadequate. Right. Not that we're players. Right. But me and my wife, I say this all the time, we got it together, together. That's a beauty. One of my good friends, he had a saying, he says, man, a sister can only see Batman, she could never see Bruce Wayne. I said, what do you mean? He says, man, I can't let her know that I, I, I'm depressed or sad and at the end of my day at work and I need something to drink. Mm-hmm. But I love him. I'm like, dude, if you get the right woman, mm-hmm. she'll help you make it through that and vice versa. Right. And, and so why do you think our women, black women, are so tired of hearing the stories? Well, my wife stood beside me when I was down and helped me. They're hurting too. They need to be healed. They mm-hmm. need men to speak life in them. They're tired of having to be mama wives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, man, that's why I appreciate you going to have a discussion soon about relationships or something we're talking about. Yeah, what about. we're going to do, like I, I've just, we talked about that in a couple of weeks. We're going to do a discussion where black men and black women talk about some of these things yeah. because, I, you know, I, I was, I'm obviously aware that there's a schism, mm-hmm. but we are, <laughs> the, there seems to be, some sort of brewing hatred or a, a real feeling of distaste. And I don't know if social media is stoking it or mm. if social media is just putting a magnifying glass on it or there seems to be so little faith, at least from what I'm seeing, mm-hmm. um, between black men and black women right now uh, that I'm wondering what it is about one another that we're not getting and we're not seeing. Black men feel in some way that they're constantly being, at least the ones that I see mm-hmm. on social media yes. that started me to do this, that they're constantly being attacked by black yes. women. Yes. And black women feel like they're constantly being abandoned and belittled by black men. For sure. And so 
I was just I just wanted to get everybody in the we're room like and just this. discuss it. We're yeah. like this. Yeah. So 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 I'm saying so if you're like this, you're in a fighting stance. People understand when you clench your fist, you're sending signals to your brain that you're in danger. I think we're we're black women and black men were so beautiful. A lot of this is coming from the hurt that we're not really allowed to express. If, if we can really facilitate healing, not just for black men, for black women. You know, I serve a lot of single moms. Mm-hmm. They're hurting. My mother was one. I gave an analogy to one young boy. I said, you know how difficult that is, son? You like football? It's like Cam Newton having to hike the ball to himself, retrieve the ball, throw the ball to a receiver that is also himself. Mm-hmm. flip side like people say well black men don't want to be with the, there with the kids but first of all it's a New York Times article proving that we spend more time with our children than any other ethnicity so mm-hmm. that's a lie mm-hmm. we still need to do a better job though right the worst feeling you can ever have as a father is for your children to see something in you that you don't even believe we're hurting and so you don't fight anyone you don't care about People you don't care about, you dismiss. Just let them go. I tell you the truth, I'm telling you. Our sisters want us to rise. They do. Mm-hmm. But, they put it on the line for us every day. Yeah, yeah listen, yeah, so true. They do it so much, they're tired of hearing us saying it. Right. Black men want to be kings. That's what we say. It. The problem lies in really doing it. Mm. Like right now, I could not be, I wouldn't even be here or do no interviews, anything that I'm doing now, if I did not see that my life was bigger than me. The problem is many of us as black men are so wounded and still living from our wounds that we can't even see past five o'clock. That needs to be dealt with. Our women, you know, the scars that they have. You got two wounded people together. We can keep, we can talk around it all day, Van. But until there is an open dialogue and love, Mm -hmm. but more so until we all individually seek to get the help that we need to release this trauma. This is not a part of the black experience. It's not. It's some stuff. That's what we had to experience due to 400 years of slavery. Uh, I forgot the sister who co- who coined it uh, post-traumatic slavery syndrome. Mm. That's in our DNA. The things I saw my mother go through, the nervous breakdowns, I, it stuck in me. I had to get that stuff out of me. Mm. It took the hard work, introspective work, and that's what it's going to take. It's no answer. There's no five steps to this. It's no ten steps or why why women cheat or why black men cheat. The problem is we don't love ourselves. Mm-hmm. I forgot the boxer name. Uh, you like him, the, the one that says every day the meme they, you know, tell when he checked the reporter about Deontay story. Wilder. Yes. He says we don't love ourselves. And we look at it as just a simple notion. I'm not talking about love just hugging, but love as in protecting your neighbor, protecting our children. Why is it that our schools suffer? Why do we allow our children to go without the tools they need 
and we got millionaires all over this country. That's a major problem. We don't love ourselves. And love is not just in word, it's in action. I have a saying, I wish the world went deaf for a day so that we could realize that love is something you feel, not what you say. My mom would say love is work. Yeah, it is. And so we got a lot of real work to do. And that's why I allowed myself to be vulnerable in the book. Mm. I talked about things that I would never share 10 years ago. Mm. But I want black men to be comfortable with being vulnerable. I call it being courageously transparent. See, I'm free because I don't have nothing to prove no more, man. Mm. I can love my wife, even if she hurts me. What stops us, what keeps the beef going, is that I think she intended to do something to hurt me. Once I removed that lie, I saw like, wait a minute. She just didn't know how to articulate that I'd hurt her. Same thing with me. I tell my men when there's conflict, and this is real challenging for a man. Stop saying, brother, you pissed me off. I said, man, what you said, man, really hurt me, man, because I got nothing but love for you. That's hard for us to do. Why? When you do it, though, it frees you. And now we're able to express these emotions and we become stronger men. Mm. We're passionate people, man. We're not no killers and murderers. That stuff is systematic. Yeah, you got history where you got us as warriors and, and tribes killing each other. And you got things that are happening right now in Africa. We know that stuff is systemic. Mm. We're loving people. We have to get back to that for real, not tongue in cheek, for real. Hmm. Last thing I want to ask you about, and it's going to be short because it's something that we haven't talked about. And it's something I think we should talk about less because we've talked about what we need to be talking about, us. Hmm. We haven't talked about the white man. We haven't talked about all the things that the white man is doing to us Mm -hmm. so that we cannot survive. What this conversation has been about is what we need to do for ourselves. Mm -hmm. How do you remove, we talk about this on this podcast so much about building new systems, new ways of thinking, new ways of acting, or actually just reinstilling old ways of thinking and old ways of acting to get our communities where they need to be. Mm -hmm. How do we, change the idea while we acknowledge systemic racism and oppression things that you just talked about things that we talked about from slavery how do we change the idea that we're powerless to augment our families and our societies because there's some force hovering over us that every time we try something it's going to shoot us down first thing we got to be careful when we overgeneralize like mm-hmm. when we say white people holding us down Right. That's yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have to be very careful there. When you give a person power that they don't have, see, <sighs> greed made us in my city. Greed made the owners, many black businesses, sell. Not gentrification. Greed and not seeing beyond themselves like our ancestors did. Harriet Tubman didn't go about freeing slaves just for the immediate. She did it for the future. Our ancestors didn't die for the immediate. They died for the future. Too many of us in positions to make change, we're so concerned about the present that we're not fighting the right fight for the future. When I'm fighting, if I had to fight you and you were a skilled fighter, I don't care about your record. If I was a skilled fighter. 
I'm in a boxing gym every day. I'm well, definitely a okay, skilled uh, but Okay. Right. <laughs> say, say you like our boy Ty Woodley. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And I hate to have to fight him. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, that's <laughs> so, a handful right yeah, there. Yeah, Shout so, out but, to Woodley. But, yeah, for sure. But, but yeah. if I had to fight him and he's mm. trying to hurt my family, I don't care about no UFC championship. Mm. I don't care about what you've done to my people for 400 years. You understand? Mm -hmm. I'm concerned that my family will have a future past you. Mm. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to eradicate that. But that fight don't start with me knocking T out or you out. It start with me dealing with the emotion that has me thinking that you're bigger and stronger than I am. Mm. Do you get it now? Yeah. See, we're so focused. You can focus so much on the enemy that you'll lose the fight. And that's what we fail in that. Man, I, I, mean, I, could, go, I could go on and on. Like when we, If I'm fighting you and I hit you, and you stay with the fact that I hit you and I hurt you, man, he did it again. I'm going to hit you with five or, five or six more blows by the time you realize you come out of that emotion of me hitting you. Mm -hmm. When we get hit, we got to know how to shake it off. But we can't shake it off because of the built-up trauma of being uh, uh, enslaved and mistreated for over 400 years. Uh, I was just talking to my counselor, who's a psychiatrist. He said, I had a relationship, a fallout with someone I just met maybe for about four months. But it impacted me like I knew him for years. He says, that's not what's happening, Jason. What's happening is the trauma you experienced 10 years ago hasn't been released in that situation, so it compounds that situation. Mm, yeah. So we, it's, it's, we, we are a traumatized people. A traumatized people stay in a state of fight or flight or flight or, fight or flight mm -hmm. or freeze where we're frozen. That's what we are. Like I hate you know, when people say black people uh, don't know how to save money. We're the most resourceful people on the planet. It's not that. We spend so much money on the holidays because we're hurting. We just want to enjoy something. Word. And so how do we overcome it? Again, and it sounds so simple. But it's about dealing with us. You, a black business can open right now in your community, and we won't even support it. Yeah. So, so do you see how vain it is for us to even have these conversations? Because it's a psychological war we got to win first mm. before we get to deal with the other issues. Word, yeah. So you say, we need to create more black businesses. We need to do this. We need to do that. We've done that. And we go in their store and say, you can't give me a deal? But we'll go to the mall and pay full price. Full, full price. And brag about how much we pay. Listen, <laughs> because we don't love ourselves, man. And that's, I can't skate around it because I'm a principled person. Until mm. we're ready to do the real work, until it's tons of psychiatrists and counselors that are black, that are white, mm -hmm. that are willing to help. But we got to be willing to help ourselves for real. I mean, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say I see a counselor. I, used to, I get um, uh, psyche valves done every two years because of the work I do. Hmm. I deal with compassion fatigue every day because I got kids that come to me that are traumatized. I take that on. It's called secondhand trauma because I love them. I can't just go home and expect to be fine. I got to learn how to release that. You get in a fight, that's trauma. You lose a loved one, that's trauma. Seeing young Jasmine get killed, that's trauma. Mm. You can't just keep going and keep going and you don't have time to release that stuff. It's insane that we think we can keep, because we're so strong, but unfortunately the strongest people don't learn until we become so weak. 
and you can't keep fighting, man, and you losing. You can't keep doing the same stuff. And that's why my the release, it's not about my book and my book launch party. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have resources there for men. Emotional wellness, mental health. I got counselors. Everyone coming. I got. Uh, uh, tell tell people about that because we're doing something on the get. We're, we're about to, we're doing something together on January twenty sixth out in yes, Detroit. Yes, in Detroit. So it's a, it's a book launch party for my book, Cry Like a Man. Mm-hmm. But I wanted it more than just about me because I I'm just a servant. Okay, mm-hmm. I wanted if I can get men there and women there. Mm-hmm. For us to have a discussion like this, have my wife on the panel, my counsel on the panel, to talk about this real stuff. And then when, this, when that is over, when they walk out, they have all the resources they need right there for their sons, counseling for boys, a counseling for men. Uh, Inception is one place I love in uh, Farmington Hills where I do the uh, neurofeedback training, which allows me to reset the trauma I experience or floating in a, uh, 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 um, a, what's it called, a uh, deprivation tank, mm-hmm. where you just effortlessly floating, it allows your body to be in a deep state, uh, where it's almost like one hour and there's like four hours of deep sleep. Mm-hmm. We'll buy shoes, but we won't spend time on self-care. And we wonder why we snap so quick. So on the 26th, I, I really want it as a, a jump start. Tell the people when and where. It's at the um, Beacon in Detroit, Michigan. It is January 26th, which is a Saturday. And it's from, uh, I believe it's, is it five? It's six. Six yeah. o'clock to nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. And so you, for entrance, you come in, you get a, a book. Um, uh, the fee is $35, but it comes with a book. So it's really like $18. Right. And I'm assigned the book. But also you have access to other resources. Get to meet a beautiful brother like yourself and engage in a, a, a good conversation where men could say, I would share with my wife, but this is why. And a woman can say, well, what can I do to help my man express these things? Uh, a lot of women say, well, how can I help my man become uh, to trust me with his heart. Like, for so long, our women had to be strong for our communities. This movement, this flushing, we're going to need them to be nurturing and listening. Because we're going to cry, and we're going to cry a lot. Because we got years and years and years of hurt and trauma in us. And to have our women there, not having to have to do the stuff that they had to do for almost a century, mm-hmm. but to say, hey, I can operate in this and I can help you make it through this. And what we have to understand this, and I can end on this, when God created Adam and Eve, and, and just say, some people say I don't believe in it, okay? Mm-hmm. But just say, let's look at the principle because I believe in it. Mm-hmm. God gave Adam a responsibility to tend the garden, name the animals. He gave Eve a relationship. He created Eve for her. What we need to understand is that our women desire to love us and give us their hearts and nurture us. But we shun that because of our wounds. They're well equipped to be there to allow us to flush this stuff out. We just got to allow because God gifted them that way. The closest you will ever get to like people, it's a vain attempt to seek unconditional love on earth. It's impossible because everything is based on condition. You could love me now and I could slap you and, and kill your dad. You won't love me the same. It's condition. Hmm. The closest you will ever get to that is from a mother. Mm. A father would kick a son out if he smoked crack. A mother would open the son back. Mm-hmm. That power is in our wives, our women. 
That's why I love that I can cry with my wife because I miss my mother. God never designed for me not to be with a nurturer. My wife, when, before she had our children, she had the gift of nurturing. When she had my, the children, she also could give me what she gives them. Mm. I just had to allow her. And that's when I started my own journey to getting the help that I needed because I got tired of hurting my family and I got tired of hurting myself. And I did the hard introspective work and you can't argue it because you can see it. You look at my social feed from 2015 and look at it now. That's a direct result of me allowing God to break me and to heal me. Mm-hmm. The breaking process was to get Jason out the way, my strong will, the things that I want, my desires that counted his, and allow him to gracefully teach me how to love. And when my, when my mother had dementia, I couldn't operate only in masculinity because it was killing me, Van. I was, man, I was going crazy. He says, because you're not being a human. To get through this, Jason... You're going to have to love your mother. You're going to have to cry. I'm going to teach you what sacrifice is. Sacrifice is not doing what someone needs to be done. Sacrifice is doing what they need to be done that you don't want to do. That's sacrifice. You can't sacrifice if you only operate in masculinity because it's going to take love. It's going to take compassion. It's going to take sacrifice. Mm. And so that's what I'm hoping uh, God will use me for. Um, I'm not infallible by any means. Do I still have struggles with trauma? Absolutely. But I got victory because I know how to beat them. Mm. Maddie, give it up for Jason Wilson right there. Maddie, clap. Everybody clap. Everybody clap. Brother, I'm so happy that we've been gifted with you and your mind and more than that, your effort. Um, Once again, I'm going to tell you all one more time. January 26th. Uh, it, in Detroit, I'm going to be there moderating the Q&A. The book is called Cry Like a Man. The book is a must-read. It is a, a it, I look at it more, it's a memoir, but it's also a manual. Uh, it's just an incredible piece of literature. You're an incredible man. Thank you, sir. We loved having you here on the Red Pill Podcast. I Listen, the only reason why I didn't cry was because I'm in a professional setting. <laughs> okay? I'm in a professional setting. Brother, I, I don't know what else to say, man. I'm looking forward to what's going on um, in Michigan. I think that we're going to have, I'm going to have a camera out there yes. in order to capture it. I'm going to have cameras as well. Okay, yeah, cool. Professional videographers. Okay. So, so yeah. we, we, we Gucci, we gravy. Yeah. It's going to be cold out there uh, in Detroit. That's how you know. <laughs> look, look, Jace's beautiful daughter over here is yeah. like, yeah, it's going to be cold. Yeah. Um, but it's all right. Cause mm-hmm. I got I got the Tims I got some I got all kinds of you gonna have a lot of love brother a lot of love yes, man sir. thank you so much for thank joining you, brother, us today, for having brother. man thank you for everything your support man I can't tell you how many people hit me up when you made that video about telling people to come saying you weren't a hero but first of all you are a hero no no no, I, no. I, no you can say I am I get listen listen yeah. listen that right there is a direct result of us not being loving ourselves it's so hard for us to receive affirmation. Did you see what just happened there? You wanted to reflect that back to me. Like what you do isn't heroic. It's very heroic, brother. You're risking your career for some of the stuff you cover. So receive it. You are a hero. You are a soldier. And I salute you. Mm. That's the beginning of healing. Accept who you are. 
And that's why I keep telling you we're hurting and we got to heal, man. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, for bro. sure, brother. Thank you much so love. much. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again to Blinkist for supporting today's episode. In today's age, it can be hard to sit down and learn more. You may think you don't have enough time to read a book. Well, think again. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways. So you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer for just our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash P-I-L-L to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash pill to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash pill.